It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension. There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Tom Tiger. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero. Global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Beyond Zero show. Recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne, syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast on the internet at bze.org.au and 3cr.org.au and whatever podcasting app you choose to use. And don't forget you can also follow us on Twitter at BZE Tech Show. My name is Kay Winnigal and I'm joined today by my co-host Michael Steindl. Today we'll be talking to Sarah Bice, who consults, educates and researches on sustainable development and corporate social responsibility. She is Director, Research Translation, Melbourne School of Government, the University of Melbourne, and is Co-Chair of the International Association for Impact Assessment's Corporate Stewardship and Risk Management section. She's worked in developing countries on matters including social and environmental impacts, shareholder engagement and public participation. She blogs at the Sustainability Sensibility and is featured in Sustainable Business Forum. She holds a PhD in sociology and an MA and a BA and probably a number of other things. <laughs> Very qualified. With a decade of experience in assisting private firms, non-profits and government agencies to plan and advance their sustainable development agendas, Sarah's research explores social responsibility and sustainability in the light of community, corporate and government interactions and has a strong focus on mining and extractives industries. She's committed to sharing, creating shared value for communities and companies through evidence-based decision-making, risk management, and strong stakeholder engagement. Good morning, Sarah. Good morning, Kay. Good morning, Mike. Good morning. Thanks for coming in, Sarah. Sarah, you've, as I just mentioned... <laughs> that was a ridiculous <laughs> introduction. Thanks, Kay. <laughs> <laughs> that's the short one. Yeah, that's, yeah, the, that's the short, the short one. one. So... With this diverse set of qualifications, how did you actually get to come into this area? So when I was doing my undergraduate, which was in journalism, I spent a lot of time doing different interviews with all kinds of communities and I realised I was really, really interested in international development and that's what led me into a Master's in International Development at the University of Melbourne and eventually into a role with Oxfam Australia. So this was more than 10 years ago, I can't believe how long it's been. And at Oxfam, the group that I worked with was the Mining and Extractives Advocacy Campaign. Now, you can tell from my accent, I'm not originally from Australia. And so mining is particularly important to Australia. And it was something I learned about uh, on a very steep trajectory through this role with Oxfam, which put me in particular in developing countries and also in remote Australian communities, working with communities affected by mining and extractives industries. And in 2004, something I never would have expected to happen in my life, I was loaded onto this tiny airplane in Papua New Guinea and I crossed all my digits hoping I would make it to the, to the small Catholic mission uh, where we then hiked for a day through the jungle to reach a community south of the Tolokuma gold mine. And Tolokuma was being allowed to dump their mine tailings in riverines tailing disposal. And so we were there to 
talk to the community about how this was impacting their traditional subsistence lifestyle. Mm. And I was also working with a team of scientists, and we took water, blood, and hair samples to understand the effect. Now, anyone who's had this type of experience must be deeply affected. And I think it was at that moment that I knew that my career would be committed uh, to figuring out how we could have more responsible mining and extractives industries. Okay. Good on you. Well which done. leads straight into um, the, the first topic we wanted to cover, which, which is the concept of social licence. Um, I recall some years ago when I first started getting active in direct action and we're holding up Pagard saying that these banks were going to lose their social licence, for example, over funding Adani. And I hadn't actually even heard the term before and it straight away made sense to me, but I doubt that I could define it coherently. You're doing work in this and in 2014 you, you published um, a report that said you now need a licence to dig. And I can imagine it is a difficult concept to find and, and that it's not yet a legal term. So can you tell our listeners where we're at with the concept of social licence and defining it? So we're coming up to almost 20 years of the social licence having been coined. Back in 1997, there was an ex-Placer Dome executive, uh, Jim Cooney, in Canada. And he was at a meeting of the World Bank. And apparently, the anecdotal story goes, Jim stood up and said, this industry can no longer continue. It must have a social license. We must be concerned with the social license to operate. Mm. Now, I don't know who was in the room with Jim that day, uh, but they all took it up and they Mm. all took it out. And a couple of years ago, Jim was interviewed by a big Canadian newspaper and he said, gee, I wish I had patented that term because (laughs) (laughs) the royalties I would receive. So we've seen social license to operate around and about since about 1997. In the early 2000s, a group of Canadian researchers who do social impact and were working heavily in South America and Latin America began to think about how can we measure this social license Mm -hmm. to operate. And these folks who are fabulous people and I know quite well, they thought, well, we have to link this to a notion of social capital something that we can measure. So in social science, we say that social capital is the ability of a community to assert themselves, and it's measured through relationships. How strong are their networks? How resilient are they? To what extent is there a high relationship quality between a community and, in this instance, a corporation? We look at things like promise keeping. We look at things like listening. We look at things like uh, the ability to have two-way dialogue. And so there's been a real movement towards measuring the social license. But my major critique of it has been and continues to be that social license to operate presents us with this kind of pseudo regulatory discourse. You said yourself, Mm -hmm. it's not legislated. Mm. And yet it's often rolled out, particularly by corporations, as a term which suggests some type of authority, consent and approval. The criteria for social license are not well defined, and our research at the moment at the Melbourne School of Government is very much focused on trying to understand what are the criteria for a social license, and how can the communities that need to use it enact these criteria in a meaningful way. So how can they, given it's a valid concept, how can a community issue or revoke a social license? One of the things that we're looking at at the moment um, is the level of cohesion within a community. One of the things that happens when we see mining and extractives or even industries like coal seam gas come into rural and regional Australian communities 
or developing country communities is that the introduction of these industries often creates divides in otherwise tightly knit communities. So you often get a division along lines of those who can see the potential for economic development, who want communities to move forward through that type of development against members of the community who are gravely concerned with environmental impacts, with the fact that most of these industries are finite. Mm -hmm. They're not going to necessarily provide the economic development forever. And so you get these divides in community. Now, the reason I talk about that first in response to your question is that what our research is beginning to suggest is that the only way that communities can successfully use social license to operate is where they have strong cohesion. So you have to have communities on the same page and using social license together. What companies tend to do is to claim a social license through their engagement with a portion of the community mm-hmm. or particular parts of the community. And so really what we need to understand now is the social license, has it become a tool of the corporation? Mm-hmm. Or is it something that could still be reclaimed by the communities that we hope could use it as a means of protest and assertion? It just seems to me that with the social license I presume companies go to consultants and say, we need a social licence to dig up this area, so what do we do? How do we go about doing that? And then they go ahead and do it. So the social licence is controlled by the company and it doesn't really take into account the different aspects of the community communities because it's many different right. groups of interest have to get together and actually be part of all that. How would that happen? How do you do that? We were talking about this earlier this week. So a researcher, Robin Mays, who's at uh, Queensland University of Technology, she worked on Ravensthorpe. And part of her research was to look at social license. So this was the uh, rather infamous mine in Western Australia. BHP Mm. Billiton opened and then very quickly closed. Very lucky to spend quite a bit of time speaking with Robin about her research and we were both saying you know we've been in this for a while have we ever actually seen a community work through social license and grant it and use it effectively and at this stage racking our brains neither of us could think of a single example Mm -hmm. where we've seen it used effectively by community it is regularly invoked it is used, as you mentioned, in protest, Mm -hmm. particularly in the coal seam gas debate in Australia. We've seen lots of community banners. You have no social license. Absolutely. Mm. Um, One study that I've done with some colleagues at the university is looking at the use of Twitter around social license to operate and how communities are using that in form of protest. And so it's a widely used term. But whether it's used effectively we're not really convinced because companies invoke it when they need it, but then they leave. Mm. And where does that social license go? And what's the social license after a company leaves a community, like in the Ravensthorpe example? Mm, exactly. And in terms of the community, you've got the local community that's affected and has a long-term effect on them, but then you've also got community interests such as divestment groups, which are operating from far afield, They also have a strong interest in it. They're part of that community, but there seems to be a fracture there. There doesn't seem to be a connect between them. Yeah, look, I'll just talk a little bit about our recent study 
of social media and the use of social media as a protest tool and the use of social media also as a public policy platform. So for about two years now, we have been capturing that word sounds very big brother, but we have been we have been capturing tweets from the Twitter sphere about mining and extractives, um, particularly coal seam gas in Australia. We now have a database that we're analyzing of about one million tweets. What we are seeing from that is that around these types of issues, social licensing issues, social media is providing a really strong platform to bring together otherwise distal communities. Now, we've seen this most recently in the case of the AGL withdrawal from the coal seam gas industry in Australia. Which they claim was for financial reasons. Absolutely. And so this is something I've written about as well. And I'm very interested in this because the communities that dedicated years in protesting the industry use social license as one of their methods of protest. Also, there was obviously a strong focus on environmental issues and concerns about the introductions of technologies about which we still have major questions, and we all know what those are called. So what we've seen through social media is that social license has expanded its reach through the ability of social media to bring together these otherwise distal communities. Mm. And I began my discussion of how can communities use social license by saying we need more cohesion. It is looking like in the preliminary stages of this analysis that social media may be a key means through which to create that cohesion because it allows rural and regional communities to connect more broadly with those who share their same interests. And Mm. that creates power. Which gives Mm. even things like the divestment movement the chance to link to, say, a mining community in North Australia and so on. Mm. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. And Mm. when you have these individualised stories, these anecdotal stories, which are very rich and which really speak to the lived experiences of communities, that in itself can add depth to an argument which is otherwise largely a financial uh, moral values divestment argument and I think that shouldn't be underestimated. You're listening to the Beyond Zero Emissions show and we're talking with Dr Sarah Bice from Melbourne University and we're discussing the need for social licenses in the mining industry. Sarah moving on now let's look at the um, coal seam gas, shale gas, um, geothermal energy extraction and CO2 storage and the social license required for these activities. Um, In a recent article in the conversation Queensland coal seam gas researchers argue that the industry is progressing faster than the science and that therefore it's leading to concerns over fugitive emissions, impacts on the underground water in the sedimentary basin and so on. Could you comment on that? Absolutely. So the first thing I would say is it is true that the technology and the spread of industry is progressing faster than our science and our social science research. So just to give listeners an idea... You mentioned, Kay, that one of my titles is Director of Research Translation. Well, what does that mean? Yes. <laughs> it means that we are we are actively, through the School of Government, trying to get our research out more quickly 
and more directly so that policymakers have a, a quicker, faster, more robust evidence base on which to take their decisions. Because when you have industries like coal seam gas, let's take Queensland as an example. In 2003, there were approximately uh, 3,000 coal seam gas wells throughout the state. Uh, by 2020, we expect that number to be approximately 40,000. Wow. And indeed, that number may already have been reached. Now, when we look at scientific research, and I'll take health as an example, because I have a good colleague who's written about this, so I've got the figures. In the UK, it takes health medical research approximately 17 years to get mm. integrated into NHS policy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Science is slow. Academics are slow. We think about things for a long time, and it takes us a long time to publish. So what do we need to do? We need to have better connections between university and industry, And certainly you can see that that agenda is top of the government's mind. And the chief scientist is also very much pushing. Now, whether we agree with these agendas or not. (laughs) Whether we agree with whether we have any research to actually translate. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. You know, you do have to fund research, but that's another day and another conversation. The issue, though, is that we are looking at ways that we can get our research more quickly to policymakers and to industry. And it is certainly the case in Australia, when we talk about the coal seam gas industry, that we are lacking things like baseline assessments for seismicity. So how much is the earth moving? What's normal for us in terms of having earthquakes? I work very closely with a lot of geoscientists, earth scientists at the Melbourne Energy Institute. And they know far more about our friend, the Earth, than I do. But they say we really do not know within Australia what our baseline seismicity is. And what that leads to is a situation in which, let's say, coal seam gas is introduced in an area. Let's say fracking occurs. Let's say there are then some low-level seismicity incidents. Without a baseline, we are unable to say whether or not those incidents are linked to it's a he said, the she said, yeah. And the same, I assume, goes for the, the water quality, the underground water and so on. 100%. And so what we are arguing for, and we have a major research initiative at the Melbourne Energy Institute called the Sedimentary Basin Management Initiative, and that looks at all of the underground resources. So we've probably all heard of the Great Artisanal Basin, But sedimentary basins actually underlie about 50% of the Australian landmass, and we get 90% of our primary energy, largely from fossil fuels, from our sedimentary basins. The majority of water supply for rural and regional communities in Australia come from our sedimentary basins. And I've also been very privileged to work with Professor Peter Cook, who won a Nobel Prize with Al Gore a few years ago, who has been heading up the Collaborative Research Centre on carbon capture and storage. And we also have potential carbon storage space in these sedimentary basins. Mm. But our science is really limited and we need more funding and we need more research so that we can take some meaningful decisions about all of the resources in the basin. So, excuse me, in terms of the sedimentary basins around Australia, that's a very large area that's covered, isn't it? It's massive. Can you give us a bit of an idea of how large it is and where it is? Well, look, 50, 50% of the Australian landmass underneath and some of the sedimentary basins also go out into the ocean. So we've got undersea basins as well. 
Because I'm not a scientist, it's difficult for me to talk about the size of sedimentary basins in geological terms. But because I study public policy, I can talk about the size of sedimentary basins in regulatory terms. And this is one of the things that my research is looking at. How do we regulate the multiple resources of the sedimentary basins to protect them for the future and to make good decisions? Our regulation historically has been siloed. So we've got regulation for water, and we've got regulation for gas, and we've got regulation for competing land use, etc. But we don't really regulate the whole of resource. So let's give an example of size. If we look at the Otway Basin, uh, which runs through Victoria and also part of South Australia, uh, we are looking at at least 73 different regulation statutes <laughs> and codes. Now, 73, okay, well, it's less than 100. It might be a, a doable number of regulations. But then we look at, well, what do these regulations comprise? Your average code runs to about 900 pages. So any of us who are trying realistically to get our heads around how we manage these resources would recognize at the moment got a regulatory soup and we perhaps need to thin it out a bit. Mm, absolutely. And you're talking about, I presume, the federal level there. So you've got the state governments having their say as well as the federal government, which... This, this I, is all levels and this is part of the problem, okay? okay? Right. And with the Otway Basin, you've got onshore and offshore of course, yeah. jurisdictions. Mm, mm. And you would think that the federal government is the body that should be making the decisions, given that it affects such a incredibly large area of our landmass. So this is one of the interesting questions that we have as well. So traditionally in Australia, because of the federalist system, uh, we have a devolution of policy making to the states. Now, in terms of the coal seam gas industry, which is obviously affecting our sedimentary basins, the devolution of regulation to the states has led to a bit of a regulatory uh, mix or a mess if you wanted to use that term. So we have very, very different regulation for that industry dependent upon the state or territory in which you're operating. In most states and territories, for example, CSG is regulated under oil and petroleum. But in Victoria, it falls under minerals. And this has serious flow-on consequences for how we manage. Now, a couple of years ago, COAG, the Commonwealth Government Group, they had a committee on energy and resources and they attempted to create what was titled, and I quote, a harmonized regulatory framework for natural gas from coal seams. And what ended up happening was that although the regulation um, was presented, the states, and we've seen this with the Murray-Darling Basin and with water resources, the states really pushed back and said, no, 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 this is our remit. And so this does also contribute to the regulatory question marks about how we manage what I see as being truly a national and, you could argue, global resource. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And is that something that your research actually focuses on as well? It is, exactly. So I am currently working with the Sedimentary Basin Management Initiative over the next three years. Um, through some funding received recently from the Westpac Bicentennial Foundation, we will be working to map the regulation of Australia's sedimentary basin. And our aim in doing that is to create a new way of visualizing 
regulation, so actually putting the regulation onto some modeling of the basins themselves. This, we hope, will be publicly available and will be something that people can go on and, and test and play with and understand. And we're also looking then at what would be a more efficient and effective regulatory mix for the optimal use of our sedimentary basins and also to protect their long-term future. So I have children and I imagine you all have children and friends and people who you would like to see enjoying the lifestyles that we enjoy long into the future. And we're only going to achieve that in Australia through good use and protection of these basin resources. So that raises a dilemma. Your program goes over seven to ten years, I understand. Communities in the meantime need access to robust research findings that they can trust. Governments need to make evidence-based decisions and and the industry needs leading-edge data. What's going to happen in the meantime to that situation and the applications for mining? I think in the meantime, the best thing that we can do is, from a research perspective, and certainly that's my job, so that's that's what I can speak to most directly, we must roll out as much good research as we can, as regularly as we can. We've got to overcome these long lag factors, and part of that is the commitment to ensure that research gets directly into the hands of policymakers when it's ready, when it's robust, as quickly as possible. And certainly at the School of Government, that's something we're committed to. Just a quick question. Um, we're just about running out of time. When the Labor government came into power in Victoria, they introduced a moratorium on fracking. And I think there's a report that's coming out fairly soon um, regarding this, and hopefully it's all good news. But given that they don't have a lot of information on on their fingertips as to make a good decision, how do you see that playing out? I think probably what we'll see is a continued moratorium for some time. Now that's, you know, I'm no oracle, but I, I think what the government is saying is that we really are lacking in evidence. We definitely need more evidence. And I think that they would be loath to enact any changes in the short term until that evidence is achieved. And the other thing I'd like to say around that is coal seam gas is so controversial that even where we have very good scientific evidence, communities are not always trustful of that evidence. Mm. And so Peter Doherty, who's a Nobel laureate, uh, wrote last year a book called The Knowledge Wars. And I'd encourage mm -hmm. everyone to have a look because he talks very much about the role for citizen science. And I think in an industry like whole seam gas, where we have a lot of questions outstanding, we need good citizen science, which mm. is where the members of the community are trained and enabled to actually collect the scientific data. Imagine if you had a seismic monitor at your local primary <laughs> school, and as part of the program, you measured seismicity. You could trust that data, you could understand that data, and you would have a deeper connection to the earth beneath your feet. Yeah. And in terms of, so you've given us one resource, is there somewhere else where people can go to get more information about this? Yeah, so on uh, the Melbourne University website at energy.unimelb.edu.au, there is a section under research for sedimentary basin management initiative. And I'm also on Twitter at Sarah underscore Bice. Fantastic. That's fantastic. I feel like we've barely started to scratch the surface as often happens in these interviews. <laughs> no pun intended. <laughs> yes. yes. If you're wondering where Laura is, she was uh, too crook today and we've got to thank Kay for coming off her deathbed too and, and helping with this program. One more thing, there's a worldwide protest on 4th to 15th of May um, uh, breaking free from fossil fuels 
Australia's component is Mother's Day weekend 7th to 8th in Newcastle. Go to the breakfree2016.org site and um, you can register there. There's a thousand people going on the water and even novices can go. Thank you very much. This is the Beyond Zero show. See you next week. It's not Thanks, a product, Thank it's you. a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension. There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero, global warming science, solutions and action taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Did you miss the latest episode of your favourite 3CR show? Visit 3CR's new improved website. Now you can listen to the latest episode of almost every 3CR show with one click, including music, arts, community languages, current affairs and more. No need to podcast, no need to download. Visit 3CR's website... 3cr.org.au Then go to your favourite programs page to listen.